Yeah, I think I'm 26 still for another six months. Yeah, you have to count on your toes. To figure it out. Yeah, uh, twice actually. Because once I'm already bent over, I just keep counting on my toes. I don't start back at my fingers. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of us. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 41 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. I almost said we'd be rogues. How tired am I? Don't cheat on us, Chuck. It's right after Christmas. We know you have another family, but we, we love you when we have you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we had family here for two days, and uh, my wife panics when people are coming over and has to have the house immaculate. And then she kept getting tired or sick or having some other issues, so I kept forcing her to go to bed and then staying up until 2 a.m. cleaning the house. So I am totally worn out. Anyway, so this is JavaScript Jabber. It's not... Ruby Rogues. If you want Ruby Rogues, go to rubyrogues.com and see what we were talking about <laughs> over there. Anyway, so um, last week we talked about conferences, and I know that AJ wanted to say something. I guess we usually do the introductions first, so let's do that, and then we'll we'll let AJ say his piece, and then we'll move on to the topic for today. So this week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hi, guys. Merry belated Christmas. We have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you from the green Christmas sphere of Virginia. Oh, you're in Virginia. Yes, I am. Cool. Visiting family. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to put a quick plug in for my Rails course. If you want to learn Ruby on Rails, go to railsrampup.com. It's kind of a guided course, and you get a lot of access to me to learn it. Anyway, um, so AJ, what did what was it that you wanted to chime in with with the conferences that we couldn't get you in last week to say? Okay, so both Merrick and myself have had the same experience. So we were talking about the having like the broad conference versus the focused conference, the broad talk or workshop versus the more focused one. And we both have come to the conclusion that having it more focused is better. Like with a conference, it's fun to go to a broad conference, but even in that like it's nice to have the focus talks like the Utah Open Source Conference, which this year is Open West Conference. It's expanding out and there's supposed to be some big surprise. I'm guessing they've got some nice speakers. And that call for papers for that opens on January 2nd, supposedly. Anyway, so like that's a really nice conference, but it's broad, but it's still fun. But the focus conferences and the focus talks are so much like it's so much easier to give a focused presentation because you have a better idea of what the people's background is. Like the talk that I gave on JavaScript at um, Utah JS went so much better than the one at Utah Open Source because there there were Python guys, there were guys who were noobs, you know, in the in that community. So it it definitely didn't flow as well as when I was surrounded by JavaScript people that all had some experience in JavaScript. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for for me, the nice thing about the big conferences is that there are more people to interact with. Yeah. 
But yeah, the smaller conferences and usually more focused conferences, yeah, you definitely get that vibe. I I totally get that. So yeah, happen to agree. Is there anything you want to add to that, Jameson, before we move on to the topic for today? I think the ideal model would be if you could get exposed to a broad um, group of people because there's value in like what when you when you bring in people that aren't super familiar with um, what you're talking about but are experts in some other domain, they look at problems in a lot different way. So there, I think there is some value in smart people that aren't experts in what you're talking about. But if you can also combine that with, I don't know, maybe there's some way to say like, come to this if you're a JavaScript guy because I'm going to go in-depth on stuff or come to this if you're a Python guy and then maybe have some broader talks as well. Then you could get kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, I, I think part of the thing is is that you know, it's it's definitely easier to tail you, tailor your topic if you're giving a talk if you know that it's got this narrow focus. But that doesn't mean that you can't do that if you're speaking at a conference. And you know, then then yeah, yeah. the people who want to go in depth on that topic can go to your talk, even if it's a broader conference. But uh, yeah, with the with the narrowly focused conferences, the nice thing is is that you know <coughs> that most of the talks will be ta- uh, catered to you. If you're sure. in the demographic that kind of, you know, fits what that one's after. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that too. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into this week's topic. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about single page applications. I don't know how many single page applications you guys have built. Um, I can honestly say that I have built a grand total of no single page applications. We I've, won't I, tell a soul. <laughs> I've, I've, I have to say, like some of the applications I've built, I've had like workflows that were sort of a single page application, but they were a subset of the site. Like the whole thing wasn't all one one uh, application. It was kind of like three or four applications that were all kind of connected, so they all kind of lived in the same overarching app. And I don't know if that that counts or not. How about you, AJ? How many of these have you been involved in? Uh, a few. I mean, when I first got into JavaScript back, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago-ish, one of the first things I tried to do was I realized, like, oh, I don't actually have to have multiple pages. When I've got jQuery, I can just get the data with JSON in. So I kind of went into it straight away. I won't say that it was architected really well. There's definitely some architecture concerns. Like it's, if you're lazy, it's a lot easier, I think, to do it with um, multi pages. So I've, I, to answer the question, things that have actually been public that people have seen, I've probably done four that, um, pretty small apps that are single page. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jameson? The thing I've been working on for the past like eight months is just a big, single page app so i haven't done a ton but i've gone pretty in depth with this one that that's so, a project yeah. for i.tv that's so that's the that's nintendo tv the we use like tv guide thing oh cool yep so with a lot of these single page apps it seems like you know i guess you could do it with jquery like aj said um the but it seems like there are a lot of frameworks out there that make it a lot easier um, which frameworks have you guys been using for these? So in, in production, we use Backbone. I've actually thought a lot about this, about why Backbone is such a good fit for us, because it is. we have had to build a lot of abstractions on top of it, and some other frameworks come with more abstractions out of the box. But 
we have kind of a weird app in that it's it's single page and it's like responsive and feels more like an application, but it has very little data entry. Like there there's not very many places where the user can manipulate data in the app. They can just kind of change state like where they are in it, but they they can't really put in that much new data. So background is a, a great fit for that because we just get all our data from the server and render it on the page and then when when they want to go somewhere else in the app, we just have to get more data from the server and render it. We don't have to worry about keeping stuff in sync or re-rendering lots of things as as uh, users like click buttons or enter form field or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing that that kind of strikes me as an issue. I know that Ember JS handles a lot of that itself. Where if you are munging through a lot of data when you go and get another copy of the same object if it's changed it gets updated everywhere yeah ember has um it has its tough things but the the one thing that i found it's the best at is just keeping your your page in sync with your data it does that really well and like all its tools and abstractions are really focused on on making that happen so it's it's amazing at that yeah um jameson or aj have have you done a whole lot with kind of the data synchronization issues or not really I, i'm not too worried about the the dom stuff i normally just have a render function that i call that um the template engine that i've used a lot is pure js i've mentioned that before um i'm kind of interested in looking in the one that uh, merrick was talking about plates and then for really small things i just you know use jquery and call the dot text to pass something in. And I'm I'm interested in in checking out Angular. I haven't done it yet, but now that I've I've gone indie, um, independent consulting and I've got a little more time on my hands, I think I'll take a look at that one because it seems the most promising. So just rolling your own render function works great if you don't have lots of nested um, lots of nested things to render. Right, but if if you have like tons and tons of nested views, and you're just rolling, or I'm like using backbone terminology already, if you have lots of things that you have nested inside each other, I imagine then your render function will call render functions on sub things you have nested. And if if you just do it all yourself naively, then little changes at the top level will cause like your entire page to re-render. And that's yeah. fine if you have lots of stuff. But if if you have lots of things, then you need either to think more about your templating system or use some framework that takes care of that stuff for you. Yeah, I mean, it seems like for a lot of this, you could roll your own with some kind of an event, and then every time you render a new element that sort of binds to your data collection, then you, uh, you know, you you bind it to the change event for each element or for the collection as a whole, just so that it, you know, it can update itself, and that way you don't have to think too much about it other than saying, oh, we got something, and yes, it's different, so, you know, fire that change event and then let it kind of trickle through the entire page. And, and having something that that won't miss elements and that will update everything properly seems like a good way to, you know, a good way to go. And so some of these frameworks really do that really well. Um, one other thing that really kind of comes to mind for a lot of this is it seems like a lot of the different pages that I build when I'm building things, you know, that go to different pages for different, you know, jobs, it seems like doing a single page application might be overkill for that. If the layout is drastically mean? different and things like that. 
So like I have, let's say I was building, I don't know, some kind of scheduler app or may, maybe um, the, the example that I keep coming back to for, uh, for like the, the Uber application that I want to build someday is, is the dental practice management application. And so if I built just one, uh, a single page app, you know, there are some benefits with performance and things and you already have the data. And so you can just update the layout on the fly, but do you just throw away the old layout and then put the new layout in when you quote unquote change pages or do you just hide one and show the other or how, how do you usually manage that? I think usually you just destroy the, so you clear out or destroy the DOM elements and then just render new ones. And do you just do that off of whatever templating engine you've decided to use? Yeah, I mean, so the way we do it in our app is we have a destroy function on all of our views. And when the views get cleaned up, they, they call destroy. And destroy, um, you can override it to like clean up event listeners or, or do any, any kind of, uh, like say your models are doing some weird things, pulling or something, you have to turn that off. But then it'll also just remove the element from the DOM. And so as you destroy the parent view, it'll just call destroy on all the child views and remove all the DOM elements. And then a new one gets created and inserted into the DOM in its place. So why destroy rather than just hide? I guess to have less stuff cluttering up the DOM. We have, so. Well, there's the, 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 the DOM being cluttered. There's one thing also memory. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's all part of it. It's, it's a resource issue. We also have. Okay. I mean, I guess you could just cache your entire app. Like every time they go somewhere, check in the cache if they've already, if you've already rendered that view and just grab it from there. But that cache could get pretty big. And there's some limitations on, on the device we're running on that make that. Maybe you could do that on a desktop like web app, but it's a little bit tough to fit all, lots of stuff in memory on, on the environment we're running in. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, some of the things that you have to worry about if your framework doesn't handle this for you. And we have to kind of wave our hands at that because all the different frameworks are really good at different things. And so some of them will have something that does this and some of them won't. But so you, you clear the DOM, you clear all of the event handlers that are, that are all the event registrations or whatever they are, um, for those elements so that it doesn't worry about watching for those anymore. And then you also have so to I, clear out the objects that you have in memory related to the old layout, unless they're being used by the new layout. Yeah, and we don't really have to do very much at all with the, the actual memory management stuff. We had a couple interesting bugs, but that seems to happen pretty well automatically with the garbage collector. Yeah. So, I mean, unless unless you're like storing all of your models in in like some global state i don't know that should happen automatically unless you're doing something crazy mm -hmm. so one other thing that, that comes to mind is um the path and so a lot of times you see like the the hash bang or something in the sure in the in the path in order to get you know you you effectively are changing state instead of changing pages you know how frequently do you do that kind of thing versus just updating the page with with whatever you want because it seems like the the hash state or the hash the hash bang or whatever is just there so that if somebody comes back to your application they can load the state they were in you know rather than having to navigate to wherever that was yes i i don't know if there's a, a super hard and fast rule on that besides just do you want the user to be able to 
go directly to this state? And if so, give it a unique URL. So I want to talk to that just a little bit. I think the principles of REST can be applied just as well on the client side as they can on the server side. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's kind of difficult about doing it is that um, so we have these systems where JavaScript has become really modular, but HTML and CSS have not yet really seen that seen that same kind of thing. Like, if I npm install um, something that I want to use with um, a browser package manager, and I require it, then it's you know it all gets concatenated into the one file and everything. But if I do an include from my Jade template or or uh, a mustache template then that doesn't necessarily include it from the npm module and and stuff like that so that but you're saying so you're saying modular in the way that you could like some magic command install and it'll install the javascript and the css and the html to use it some widget yeah so i'm i'm going to hone in back to the the routing issue but the, I think the larger issue is that the community as a whole has not yet recognized that we can throw the, the HTML or Jade or mustache templates in with the NPM module and, and provide a way to require that. So, so this idea of like widgetizing the components of the page hasn't really gotten hold in the minds of the masses yet. So with the, the routing, you could, if you, design it well, you can route to a widget and then give parameters to that widget in the same way that you do like in Sinatra or Rails or Connect or, or whatever, where you have something that you kind of mount on. You say everything that goes to slash widget name, like for example, slash users gets handled, you know, with this code and then whether it's a post or a get or yada yada and what parameters, yada yada, it behaves differently. So with the hashes, or now the transition to using push state and pop state, where you don't have to use the hash, you can just use the slashes without the, the hash sign, you can do that same thing. You can architect your app so that um, you route your code to functions that activate particular widgets. And like we use cookies for the server communication, you can use local storage for the um, the client inner communication with itself. So if you wanted to do a post, you could attach it to an object or you could put it in local storage um, since you don't have a post body. But you can still follow those same semantics just with a different mechanism. Does that make sense? So, So basically what you're saying is you can use your hash... Uh, notation, not just to say um, go to this particular state, but you can say go to this particular state, and maybe you have some components in the sidebar that you've put uh, other things into that hash path or hash information that says, oh, and by the way, make the sidebars look like this and make this look like this, and and so you can give more information than just one particular state, but you can trickle down into the state of other other things on the page and change the way that they behave as well. Yeah, and there was um, there was Sammy JS, and I think it was called jQuery Barbecue. Um, that they used to do that when the hashes were popular, but now 
everybody's transitioning over to push state and pop state. And I don't know if those libraries have been updated to handle that as well. Yeah. Push state and pop state. Is that the history JS that we talked about a while ago? Or, yeah. Yeah. The, the stuff that it handles anyway. Yeah. So like when you're on Blogspot and you click on someone's blog article and it doesn't refresh the page, it just mm-hmm. opens up the article bigger and moves the other stuff out of the way, but it gives you a different link up at the top. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just that it replaces what's in the URL bar without contacting the server. Yeah, that that's a pretty common thing. I think you know we've seen that in a lot of a lot of areas where, yeah, it just it just updates the the top bar without actually sending you to another page, and and that's what we're talking about with the the single page applications. But that hash thing is kind of a a placeholder that says here's the state we're in at the time without actually, you know, forcing you to save stuff into the browser itself. Because if you close the browser, or in certain cases, if you close the tab on the browser, then it dumps everything it has in memory. So if you go back to that link, you need that to have enough information to say, this is how the page was put together when they left. And so what you're saying is, you know, if they had, you know, changed the state so that it wasn't just in a particular you know, showing a particular blog post, but it was showing a particular blog post and showing, you know, several different uh, components in different states that it, that it carries all that information so that you can basically be back where you were. You just don't have the history at that point. So that's that's something that Ember explicitly tries to handle as well with their, their routers is more like a state machine than just a traditional router. And you can you can have like nested routes that are still on the same main page, like you were saying, but but changing components within the page and stuff will will update your URL so that you can easily just completely reconstruct the page from from the URL. Yeah. So then, what it comes down to is, do you need something like that or not? Yeah. You know, because I I can definitely see some simple applications that it's just like, well, gee, that's real nice to have, but you know, it's a tool in the toolbox that I'm never going to touch. Sure. And so it just depends on, you know, whether or not you, you care. And sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you can get away with it on a larger app and then, you know, others, you know, you'll have power users that really want that functionality. So so one thing we haven't talked about oh, um, a ton that I think would be important to talk about is, is synchronizing your data. Um, we mentioned just Ajax and that's kind of the basic case. But what about if you need to keep things in, in sync that when, when other things could be changing the data in the background? So you're showing some like shared view that lots of users can edit mm-hmm. data on. How do you make sure that stays in sync? So we, we talked about like keeping the DOM in sync with the data a little bit with the events and trickle downs and all that stuff. And and this component stuff kind of ties into that too. Um, one thing that comes to to mind here is something that Rails does with all of its models, and that is is that it adds a created at and an updated at um, timestamp. And so if you have that or some kind of versioning um, mechanism or something, then you can just compare the version numbers, and then um, every time you do a request, you just cycle through them and see if you already have them and if they've changed. But it, I, I don't know how efficient it would be to actually do something like that. If you want to do it live, you can use WebSockets, and then I think the time step idea works pretty well. If there's two updates, you just take, you know, whichever one made it across both boundaries is the one that wins, and you just play that one. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you if you really care about 
keeping all updates, you can look into, I think it's operational transformation. There's like this whole field of research on doing simultaneous updates to, to the same text and merging them together. Um, yeah. it, that, that's interesting. I don't know that we have any objects that really carry that kind of data unless it's like a huge blog post or something. You know, that, that much data anyway. But that, it's so the, the classic one is like, have you ever used Lucidchart? No. It's just this online charting thing. It's basically, what's the Microsoft one? Visio in your oh, browser. Okay. Uh-huh. It's pretty ridiculous. They've like re-implemented lots of features in Canvas. So everything is really responsive and, and works pretty much like a desktop application. But it is they, way cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing as just an example of a web app. But they, they do lots of, um, of this OT stuff to merge in changes if you're editing the same uh, diagram at the same time. So it, it definitely can be useful in certain situations. Do you want to, so I, I know about WebSockets. I haven't used them in production a little bit, or not a little bit at all. So do you want to talk a little bit more about, have you deployed them or used them in, in something, AJ? Well, I've, have they gone into production? Mm, I don't think I've used them in anything that, that was really in production, but I've, I've so, used them in a couple test amps, apps. And, so I guess um, I should just back up. We we do stuff with keeping data in sync. Um, data can change from lots of different backend sources in our app, but we just do lots of polling, and it works fine for us. It's not ideal. It adds some latency, obviously. When when I mean whatever the polling interval is, that's the the very fastest you can get updates. Yeah, um, well, po- polling has worked well for the web for twenty odd years, so. <laughs> You know, just, I would expect that it would work for you, but yeah, there are some trade-offs. Yeah, so we've we've looked at WebSockets and we've used them in other apps, not in this one. But it seems a little bit scary trying to. It, it seems like it'd be a lot more resource intensive, right? With polling, you can like caching all works fine, and there's lots of tried and true techniques for just HTTP requests that all work. And so I think that's kind of the downside of WebSockets is it's not something that you can curl. Like, yeah, when I think about architecting a web app, I kind of start with how do I curl it? You know, like I'm not as worried about... Um, to the, the uninitiated, when he says curl, he means the curl utility in um, the Unix or Linux world that goes and does a request to a web server and gets a response back. Yeah, so it's like when you aren't dealing with a test framework yet and you just want something quick and dirty, curl is what you use. And if you if you go to api.yourfavoritewebapp.com, it's going to give you a bunch of stuff with curl examples on there, or at least in a lot of cases, like uh, the Joint website. If you do api.joint.com, I believe that takes you to a page where they have a bunch of curl stuff, or at least it used to. Anyway, so WebSockets are kind of new, and so there's not like a standard utility like Netcat or Curl where you say, WebSocket, connect to this and let me debug it by hand. Yeah, the best thing you have for that really is you build you build your application with some kind of endpoint that will make the connection for you with JavaScript. And then you fiddle with it over the console. Yeah. And you fiddle with the back end sending information over the WebSocket with another console on the server. 
So I think the case for the WebSocket is more just streaming data that is changing frequently and that isn't super critical to save an archive. I mean, like maybe you're saving and archiving it, but it's not it's not like a document or a file. It's like, right, it's a, like stream a stream chat, of text or, or something. Yeah, like a chat server or like if you are moving something around on a page and you want to move those updates quickly like a game or something, mm-hmm. like that would make a lot of sense, I think. Yeah, where you basically need the immediate feedback. So it's basically when you want the page to react to, to the data change immediately. Yep. And then and then you just manage it using some of the mechanisms that we talked about or find a framework that'll do it for you to keep it all in sync and update everything the way that it needs to be updated. Yeah, because if you just wantonly use WebSockets, I think that you end up with the TCP problem again. It's it's kind of could be a step backwards for you. You know, it's like people that don't understand HTTP, they they try to implement things in TCP and they're like, oh, well, I need a way to specify a resource and, oh, I need a way to specify compression and, oh, I need a way to specify encryption and, oh, I need a way to say what the content type is and what the byte length is. And then when they're done, they spent, you know, three months designing some protocol that is known as HTTP by everyone else, except their version isn't compliant with anyone else's. <laughs> And so I think with WebSockets, um, there's definitely a temptation that could, that could, you know, you could architect things poorly and then end up just having done better using regular HTTP. Yeah, there, there, there have been issues with WebSockets in the past. I think most of them have been solved. The security issues and the, you know, some of the other issues that have come up with it. Um, the only other problem that I really see with it is that it's not a strong standard in the sense that if you build an HTML page, any browser you deal with is going to be able to render it pretty close to accurate. Um, if, you, if you're using WebSockets, some of the web browsers out there support them in different ways, and so you can't always count on um, more than just the really, really basic features of WebSockets working in the browser that you choose. And I would so like to why... clarify that by some, we're not talking about Internet Explorer 6 in this case. It's actually legitimate, like mobile browsers are different versus desktop browsers versus yeah. the version of WebKit that Safari uses versus, versus the WebKit that Chrome uses. Well, so some and, of that can... And then the other thing is, is a lot of the older browsers don't support them. So, so some of that can be abstracted away if you use um, one of the WebSocket libraries. Socket.io is one. Um, it depends on some backend components as well. I'm not aware of any other ones, but I'm sure there are more WebSocket libraries out there that will fall back to like long polling if they need to, or some other things if if WebSockets isn't supported in the browser. Yep. So, have you used Web or I mean Socket.io? Oh, I've used Web. Yes. I love no, no, no. Socket.io. I have used Socket.io. Um, not in production. I've done a couple just little tests with it, but I. I have no experience with scaling it or, or making sure it stays up or, or anything like that. So, yeah, not, not yeah. super experienced yeah. with it. It's something I need to look into more. I played with it, but I'd like to try doing raw web sockets a little bit more because when I did try Socket.io, granted it was a long time ago, I think things are much improved, but it kind of got a little bit confused between the long polling and the, you know, between different 
browsers that the, the experience of the stability of it was not consistent, but that was like a year ago when the standard was still changing. Now the standard's pretty much finalized. Yeah. And, and that's where I'm kind of hoping that the next versions of, of Chrome and Firefox and Opera and, you know, some of the, um, some of the mobile browsers really will kind of come in and say, okay, you know, our implementation of JavaScript to hit this, you know, is the same and we can just deal with them, you know, with, a, with a very clean and common API, you know, and, and, and if you're using socket IO or something like that, you know, when you upgrade it, it just will do the right thing. But, you know, yeah, I think, I think the clarification there would be really, really nice. Well, now I know what I'm going to do today. Yeah. So, um, one other thing that I, I want to get into a little bit here is I've seen some apps in the, in, in, and not just even necessarily single page applications, but they run into issues when you try and create too many DOM elements or they run into issues when you try and put too many, you know, you try and instantiate too many objects and don't clean them up. Um, you know, eventually they start to fill up memory and then your browser starts complaining that or it'll just hang in some cases. Um, and it seems like if you're dealing with, for example, again, we'll go to the dental app just cause I, I like the example. But let's say that. Right, do you like want to become a dentist, Chuck? My dad's a dentist. Okay. Um, and, and we've talked about it because he has issues with Dentrix. And I don't think I'm ever going to actually build it, but it's fun to talk about. And it gives me an example that has a lot of different aspects to it. So let's say that he has, um, you know, 10,000 um, uh, patients or even a million patients, you know. And so you load the material. You know, you load the majority of those into your, into memory in your browser, and then the thing starts to slow down. So, you know, do, do you run into that with a single page app more frequently than you do other apps? And if, if so, how do you Sorry, finish. deal with it? So I, I don't know about running into it more frequently than other apps, but you can definitely deal with it in a few different ways. Um, one classic issue or one classic solution is just to, remove stuff that isn't on the screen so if you're scrolling through something you have to kind of do your own scrolling to do this but if you're scrolling through some gigantic list then remove the things that are above above you that you've already scrolled past right like above right. some certain thresholds you can still scroll back the other way um or i've seen that so effectively what you do is say it shows 10 on the screen you show 30 you get 30 more in either direction Yep. And that way, if yep, they scroll slowly, they can find them. And if they scroll quickly, then it just gives them, you know, the you scrolled through 50 million of these kind of thing, and then you get to wherever you are, and it loads those in. Yeah. About the, the memory thing of having all the models loaded, I guess if, if you want all the data, if your data is too big to fit in memory, you'd have to do some similar thing where you're listening on some kind of event to know when you need to update the set of data that you you have in memory is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that question generally more points to user experience because, yeah, I've loaded 10,000 elements on a page before and it takes a heck of a long time. And then when you scroll, it's like your CPU fan turns on, right? But <laughs> that, that's, that's more of a... you, ESPN.com. <laughs> but uh, that's more of a thing where 
that's a prototype situation. And in what real life situation? And I bring this up all the time, and I always have somebody that's going to argue the other side with me, but I, I have never understood it still. You know, in what situation are you going to be displaying 10,000 items to a user? In what situation is that even desirable? You know, when are you designing this experience and you say, oh, you okay. know, it would make this better if there were 10,000 items on the screen? What if your client is Scrooge McDuck? And he wants to see all of his dollar bills individually laid out. Boom. You need millions and millions of elements. No, know. no. What you do is you just hack Solitaire on Windows, and then you play it to the point where it's going to win, and you have it do dollars instead of face cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but effectively, if you had to do something like that, again, you can play some of those scrolling tricks. So you show what will show on the screen. You show what will show on the next two screens down if they scroll. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you play that game. So they scroll and it creates a scroll event that, you know, shows the right thing as they scroll by without actually loading all of those elements into memory. So let me make sure I understand you, AJ. You're saying that if you are ever in a situation where you need to, like, individually look through tens of thousands of items then you you would advocate stepping back and like saying there's got to be some way to summarize these and and then be able to drill down into the exact ones that you want instead of just showing everything right yeah and for, and and for that i'm going to cite some research that i can't remember how to get to it but <laughs> there's the um there's the thing where Man, if you're on wikipedia i'd write the snarkiest comment about about this so there's this thing where there's a number of dots on the screen. So there's like a bunch of blue circles, right? And then you're supposed to be able to say how many blue circles there are, right? And then the next experiment is you make some of the blue circles like 10 times larger. And so you say, you know, find all the blue circles that are the big ones. And then on the next screen, you have blue circles, but then you have blue squares. And you say, well, find all the ones that are squares, and then on the next screen, you have the blue circles, but then you have the red circles, and you find say find all the ones that are red, right? So the purpose of the experiment was to find out how do people most easily recognize distinct data sets, and the way that you do it is that that they you know they find is that it's through color. If you color the ones red, then people can tell you approximately how many are on the screen way faster than if you make them a different shape or if you make them a different size kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's the, the basic data problem. You know, of these 10,000 pieces of information, how are you going to make them distinct so you'd even know which ones are important to you at the time anyway? Yeah. All right, so I want to get to another question that I have about single-page apps, and that's really, it seems like it's real easy to build multiple-page apps. In some cases, I think it... it probably makes sense to do it in some cases it probably doesn't in, in your opinions um what when do you want to definitely go with a single page page app and when would you definitely not want to part of it comes down to how well is your data a series of documents um and and does it respond well to being represented like that what, what do you so, mean a series of so documents? say you're building I don't know, some viewer for academic papers or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, those are documents, and you can probably think of some different ways to organize them. 
but in the end you you're going to want to like go through a bunch of documents like some some summary review of of all the papers by some author like that's a document and then the individual papers are documents but actually now that i'm saying this you could i mean the documents are the 10,000 items <laughs> only if you're donald knuth he's got a billion papers um but then again, I mean, I guess you can still do a document-based app as a as a single-page app. You just mm -hmm. use hash changes instead of going to the server and getting a page. Yeah, I've I've convinced myself that I don't know the answer. Sorry. Well, what about you, AJ? Um, so I think ideally, every app should be able to be a single-page app. I mean, in my ideal world. An application would be something that I call an init function and pass in the root element, and the, the application would just instantiate itself on top of the root element. And so I could have multiple applications on a page or multiple widgets or whatever. To be a little more realistic, I would say do one thing and do it well, right? So if you're getting outside of the scope of, of your purpose, for the 90% of what the user wants to do, then create a different app. Like it makes sense that the write app, the presentation app, and the draw app are all different in Google Drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tend to agree. In fact, I was gonna, um, I was gonna basically say that in most cases, it seems like most apps could go either way, and it really just comes down to where you want to manage the switching, whether you want it to be managed through the standard HTML, HTTP, or whether you're more comfortable managing it in JavaScript. But I so, like the idea of splitting it up if you have multiple apps that have multiple um, responsibilities. So, for example, if you were doing the dental app, you would have your, um, your uh, patient management and your scheduling as two different apps, and they would be two different pages. And that way you can keep your domains from cluttering the same space and you can think of them separately. But uh, even then, I mean, you could just make those different states in your single page app and then, you know, clear one off and put the other one on. So uh, I think really what it comes down to is where are you most comfortable managing these different layers? So there are some apps that you definitely need to make them single page apps if they're if you're trying to recreate a desktop-like experience, like if you're actually making an app, not a series of pages, then mm -hmm. for sure you want to do a single-page app. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right, Chuck. There are lots that could go either way, and it depends on if you like JavaScript and you want to do lots of client-side stuff and have a simpler server, um, a simpler backend, then it makes a lot of sense. If you're not comfortable, like there are some people that don't like the workflow of, um, you want to make a change, so you have to change some stuff in your API, and then you have to change some stuff in your templates, and then in your CSS files that go with that template, and then with your JavaScript files that go with that. And some people that really drives them crazy. And Wait, they just want that. Isn't that the same either way? What do you mean? Like a single page, multi page. How is that process different? That sounds like the same thing to me. You still have to change your JavaScript. You still have to change your CSS. No, not if you're just sending down rendered HTML. We got to so change guess, what renders the HTML. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's so. For example, it's really easy to put an anchor tag in that says "Go to this other page." Really easy to do that. You just put it in. 
The flip side is, is in JavaScript, it's also really simple to create a, uh, um, an event that will go and change the state of your page. And the initial, the initialization for the new page that's loaded, if you follow a link versus the, um, the page, the work that's done when you change state, there really isn't a whole lot of difference there because they're going to have to do the same work to provide the same functionality. So really one, all we're talking about is how you manage that transition. One counter argument that I can provide though from my own experience is when you're working with a designer who is not a developer yes, there, and you're trying to do the single page app, you definitely cannot be using straight HTML. And I don't know, I'd, I'd hope that no one listening to this podcast has ever concluded that straight HTML is the way to go. You definitely have to be using something like Jade where you can have your your widgets completely separate so the designer can render just that one widget as a you know a Jade to HTML and view it. Because if they don't have the JavaScript and the server end and they're trying to figure out what the thing looks like, then it is much more difficult for them to work with you on a single page app. And unless you've considered that and you've designed it such that things are separated so that they can see what a view looks like without having to have the full application running. That's a great point. When we've done that in the past, we just had to throw up some dummy view that they could navigate to and would have fake data. But it seems like that's something you could consider. Like you said, you could you could build that into your your application so that every view could potentially just be rendered on its own page in development mode or something. Do you guys know of anything out there that does that? No, not off the top of my head. I just create my templates using dummy data and I separate them out so that when the app is built, it all gets included. All the CSS gets included in one file using less. All of the HTML gets included in one file using Jade. All the JavaScript in one file using Pack Manager. No, yeah, that's that's how we do it too. But it'd be cool if, say, you you could turn on some flag in your app, and then maybe if you navigate to like the path of your template, then it would just render well, it. Yeah. So there, there, there you go with the push state pop state, right? So with push state pop state. You can have your um, link be the path to the rendered template so that if they're viewing it statically, then it would take them to the rendered template. But then when your application's running, if you're using push state, pop state, then when they click on the link, it would just execute that get rest routing mechanism. Yeah, that makes sense. One other thing that comes to mind, and this is something that, that I do in some cases, is that I'll just have some default data, like you guys said, dummy data, and then if if you uh, go to it and you pass it the right flags, then it'll load it up in development mode and just show it to you with the default data in. Um, I don't know if there's a good package that will do that, but it seems like something that would be relatively simple to build. We're running out of time, so um, I'm just going to go ahead and cut right over to the picks. Jameson, why don't you start us off? Oh, I have notes, but I forgot to get the actual names of my thing. Uh, can you? I'm gonna pull an AJ and pass it on to AJ while I Google stuff really okay. quick. <laughs> Sweet. Um. So did I? Did I already mention simple? The banking. I think you did. Maybe. Mention it okay. again. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'll mention it again. So, simple is a company that technically is not a bank but they run on top of a brandable bank. So it's like when you have kind of a big company and like they have their own bank, but really they don't have their own bank. They 
have a bank behind them that then allows them to have a web page with all of the branding and all the paperwork has all the branding, et cetera, et cetera. Simple is a user interaction company that rebrands a bank. Um, so every interaction that you have with Simple is a very simple interaction. It's very pleasurable. Their app on the iPhone works really well. Their website is mostly intuitive, definitely better than any banking website I've ever used in my life. And they're not focused on giving you the best saving rates and, and, you know, they're not like a mutual fund company. Their, their thing is just, they get away with all the bank, do away with all the bank fees and all the complicated stuff you don't like about dealing with your bank. And basically it just a checking account for your, your day-to-day stuff, not for your investments. Yeah. Simple is is great. I second it. Awesome. Oh, you're using it now too. Um, I have some money in it. My wife is still a little skeptical about it, but yeah, it's, and I've, it's sweet. I still have my invite. The one friend that was going to do it, I think their Android app isn't ready yet, or maybe it wasn't at the time that I extended the invite, and so he didn't end up joining. So I still have my invite. All right, Jameson, what are your picks? I am ready. Okay. One is a website which also has a newsletter called codingforinterviews.com. The name is a little misleading. So it, it sends you those like classic interview questions like this how would you code up a binary search tree or stuff like that. Just kind of like basic data structures and algorithms questions and, and little challenges. I, I think these are terrible interview questions, um, but it's really fun to just have a little practice task thing to do. Um, and, and they shouldn't take super long to do or at least to just think about. So I, I, I don't use them actually for interviews or preparing for interviews, but they're just fun little exercises. So you can What's go to that website. It's codingforinterviews.com. So anyways, my, my next pick is a, a blog post called What Does Randomness Look Like? Um, it's by this, you know, paste it in here. It, it's on a great scientific blog that I also found lots of good stuff on. But this one's all about um, how do you determine whether some pattern is random or whether some events actually are, are random or not. And it gets into a, a little bit of statistics, but it's a really gentle introduction and very easy to understand and really well written too. So I really liked it. Those are my picks. You are so well read, Jameson. Huh. I love If I was well done, then that'd be good. Being well read isn't that great of an accomplishment. Well, whatever, dude. I, thank you, I, I wish that I still worked in the same office as you because I always loved your little random tidbits of, I read this article and I learned this cool thing and it was always enlightening. Thank you. And uh, now that we've got some dead space because Chuck is apparently taking care of business. It's his time to not to, to accidentally mute his microphone. So I did want to plug myself a little bit because I am now an independent consultant. And um, so if you want me, uh, your test of skill is to figure out how to get my email address from Googling for it. (laughs) Because if you can't, it's probably not going to work out. What kind of stuff are you looking to do? Client side, server side? Yeah, just JavaScript, Node.js. Yeah, I definitely uh, giving out massages. Um, that's that's definitely part of the kind of work I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. 
Oh, Chuck, we were lost without you. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you were. That's okay. I just started shamelessly plugging myself. That's fine. We'll get it all edited out. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so uh, I guess it's my turn for picks. Um, my first pick is uh, my chair. I just bought a new office chair. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the pictures. Um, maybe I'll put links to the tweets that had I the did. pictures I saw on them. Those. Yeah, I wound up uh, flat on my back on the floor because my chair broke. Were you leaning back in your chair? My mom always told me not to do that or it would break. Well, it was made to lean back. It just wasn't <laughs> made to lean back like that, apparently. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, so I bought a new chair. And this is the second chair I've broken, I think. So, um, no, I, I replaced the chair before it because it would squeak when I was sitting in it during my podcast. So I would, oh, I would shift oh. my weight and it would be like, squeak. I remember hearing your squeaky chair. Yeah. So, uh, I got that chair Well, my wife got it for me for Christmas last year and it broke just before Christmas this year. So I talked her into letting me buy an, a Herman Miller Aeron chair. Wow. And uh yeah, they're not cheap chairs, but I'll tell you That's how what, you know you're loved. I am sit I've been sitting in this chair all morning and it feels terrific. Um I got the one I got the adjustable lumbar support on it. So uh, you know, it kind of puts my back in the right position, but you know, the armrests are about about the right height and you know, it tells you how to adjust it to, you know, take the pressure off of the right areas of your body and it's just it's it's been really really nice. It's a lot more comfortable than my last chair, so I'm I'm definitely gonna pick it. My other pick is a website that I use a lot of times, and this is not a technical pick at all. Um, but this is a, a website that I use when I get into the the mood to cook some food. Um, I go to allrecipes.com, allrecipes.com, and um, they have recipes for all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, sometimes I'll do marinades and then I'll go grill something. And sometimes I'll uh, I'll get recipes for like the crock pot. The crock pot's been my favorite for a while now. Um, just because I can just dump a bunch of stuff in it and then we have dinner at night because <laughs> I left it on all day. Um, and so that's a good way to go. My wife and I have been eating a lot like crap lately. So, um, you know, we've been eating all the goodies and stuff that you get on the holidays. Yeah, it's, it's Christmas tradition. So um, we are, we're looking at, cutting that out and getting back on track with our, uh, with our healthy living. So, um, all recipes has a lot of great recipes for that. It's cheaper than eating out and it, you know, all that anyway to cook your own food. So yeah, I don't I, know about that cheaper than eating out. Fresh fruits and vegetables are expensive. Yeah. Well, it depends on where you go to get them to. And it depends on how you're using them. If that's all you're eating, then yeah, they are kind of expensive. But um, in my case, you know, generally I go buy like some, I'm, I'm really hankering for some chili. So I'm, I'm thinking about going to the store and getting like some ground beef and some beans and stuff and, and just putting that in the crock pot and cooking it up. Of course, I can't add a whole lot of peppers because my, my wife and my kids won't eat it if I do. But, um, you know, just stuff like that. So you get a good, you get a good uh, meal together and then you wind up... Uh, you wind up eating it for a few days sometimes because you made a lot of it. But the nice thing about it, too, is that um, if you're cooking for a family, I think you really get the, the savings out of this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, because you just, you just put a couple of little portions out for the kids and then you eat yourself. And 
anyway, it's it's a good deal. But yeah, they have some terrific recipes and they have them pretty well broken out. Great recipes and um, so I'll I'll pick four or five. I've been rambling on this for a while. I'll pick four or five and then I'll print them out. I'll go buy all the all the ingredients and then I'll cook every other day for my for my family for a week or two. So did, did they sure. have a shopping cart thing? No, I wish they did. Don't they have a thing where you can put in, like, this is the crap I have in my fridge, and I don't want to eat ramen again. What can I make with this? I haven't seen that either. I think that one they might have be one my recipes. Oh. There's all recipes, my recipes, and then, like, Food Network. All my recipes. The big three sites. Yeah, MySpace and Facebook. If there was one that was like... Isn't that what Hadoop is? Isn't that a recipes guide or something like that? My recipes, it looks like, has a what's in your pantry. None of you guys even laughed at my hilarious Hadoop joke. Come on. Uh, you're, you must have been shushed or something. No, I, oh, heard no. I heard it. I didn't think it was that funny. Oh, yeah, yeah. I must have been shushed. <laughs> I was trying to save you. Yeah, I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at these different um, websites. A shopping list on all on all recipes would be really super nice. In fact, I've thought about actually seeing if they have an API and then kind of doing that myself. So it's like the, you know, having building an app that basically says, yeah, these are the recipes that you've made off of all recipes, you know, so you want to make them again? Yes. And then, yeah, have it build you a shopping list. But anyway, that'd may- be cool. Maybe I'm you just could totally at the do it. Make a little uh, bookmarklet widget with jQuery. Ooh. That's not a bad idea. I, I like doing that kind of stuff when I like don't feel like doing real work, but like I just kind of want to nibble on some code for a bit. Yeah, well, just find a site to scrape. Well, I have uh, <laughs> I've I've been I'm, I'm going to start putting up videos on teachmetocode.com again, and so I might do that for one of them. Just be like, hey, I've I've been wanting this, so dang it, <laughs> you know. And so that yeah, then it's if you're on a recipe page, it's like add this recipe to my list, and then it. It puts the recipe in your list and it puts the shopping list together. And so you can just print the whole thing and it prints the recipe, it prints the shopping list, and it does all that good stuff. Anyway, um, so yeah, those are my picks. Um, the chair I like a whole bunch more than all recipes, and all recipes got way more time. But anyway, so uh, we'll wrap this up. In two weeks, we're going to be talking to uh, David Herman. David Herman about effective JavaScript. So read the book. And we'll we'll get we'll get him on the show and we'll we'll talk to him about it. Now it is it's scheduled. Super good. It's it, a really good book. Yeah, yeah I say that so every far, week. I like it. It's still true every week. It's, yeah. it's a great read. So I am going to warn you. It is scheduled for us to record that on the tenth, but I'm going to be out of town, so we may move it just because I want to be on the show and I have the power. So anyway, um, so yeah. Other than that, we will wrap this up. We'll catch you all in a week. All right. See you guys. Bye. See ya.